I wanted to uh, say something about tonight. It's a little unusual that we would have something on Sunday night, but uh, there's uh, a pragmatic reason for it. As I was putting together this year of teaching, and specifically the Second Corinthians series, I realized there wasn't enough Sundays to do everything I wanted to do. And so in order to get chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians into the series, I decided we would cover them tonight. So if you want to get in on those two chapters, because we're going to chapter 10 next week, you'll want to come tonight. It's going to be pretty informal. We'll sit around tables. There'll be snacks. There'll be coffee. Lawrence and I will um, take you through those two chapters, and uh, you'll get a chance to be a part of the discovery and uh, talking about what Paul teaches there about giving. So that's for tonight, 6 o'clock. I do want to encourage you to be praying for uh, our youth. We have 25 teenagers and 8 adult leaders right now probably at the deck with a couple thousand other people worshiping and having their last session at their spring blitz. And uh, we just want to be praying that um, this morning would be really significant to some of our teenagers as they hear the Word of God presented. That maybe maybe God has something life-changing in store for them this morning. So we want to be able to be praying for them. And by the way, not just for them, but God might have something life-changing in store for you. This morning here, you aren't here by accident. Somehow you were meant to hear what we're going to see in Second Corinthians. So let's pray for them to meet God in a special way in Duluth. But let's pray for ourselves as well. So let's pray. Our Father, we come to you as we <clears throat> open up your word. Thank you for this special time of worship. Lord, it's been so good to be reminded of your grace, to be reminded of your life-changing power, to be reminded of the fact that it's, it's all about you. There are things we cannot do. There is so much we cannot do as far as our lives changing and, and being the, the people you want us to be and the people, if we're honest, we want to be. And Father, I pray for our teenagers and all that they gather with this morning right now as they're worshiping there in the deck. Father, I pray that as your word is taught, that something would happen in lives, that there would be change, that there would be response to your word, and that your spirit would work. We look forward to hearing about that, Lord. We also pray, Lord, that in the next while you would work here, because your spirit is here too. And we're going to look at your word. And Lord, I just pray that you have prepared different ones to come and hear what these scriptures say, and that maybe, God, your spirit would cause this to be a significant day for someone sitting right here in Embarrass, in this building, at this moment. Father, that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue our series through that letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to uh, give you three illustrations right at the beginning. I'm going to suggest that they all have something in common. And as you listen to them, I want you to try and think what they might have in common. Here's the first one. Maybe you've heard of St. Augustine. One of the writings of St. Augustine is called the Confessions. And it's kind of autobiographical. It's about his life and especially his long journey to Jesus. And one of the things that kept getting in the way of Augustine in his journey toward Jesus was his struggle with lust. He basically was in bondage to sexual immorality. 
And it was one of the things that kept him from Jesus for the longest time. And he knew it. And there was a point in his life where he prayed this very short prayer. And the prayer was this. He said, Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet. Second illustration. There was an eagle flying over a river in the wintertime. And as he was looking down on the river, he saw this chunk of ice. And he was getting kind of tired. So he landed on the chunk of ice to rest and began floating down the river, even though he knew that in the distance there was a waterfall. As time went on and as he got closer to this waterfall, he really believed he had plenty of time to leave the ice chunk before getting to the waterfall. What he didn't realize was that as the time went by, his feet froze to the ice chunk. And as he got close to the waterfall and decided to leave, he couldn't. He was frozen, stuck to that ice chunk. And sure enough, he went over the waterfall to his doom because he thought he had plenty of time to escape. Third illustration. Do you remember the Etch-A-Sketch? Anybody have an Etch-A-Sketch? What a magical little box that was. You turn one knob and you can make a horizontal line on the screen. You turn the other knob and you can make a vertical line on the screen. And if you're really good, you could turn both knobs at the same time and make diagonal lines, curvy lines, circles. You could create some amazing things. It was like magic. But the most magical thing about the Etch-A-Sketch is that you could turn it over upside down and shake it. And what would happen? You would have a clean screen. And no matter what it looked like when you turned it over and shook it, you now could start fresh. What do those three illustrations have in common? Well, what they have in common is they all can point to our subject this morning that we find the Apostle Paul talking about in 2 Corinthians 7. And that subject is repentance. Now, how do those three illustrations all somehow connect with repentance? We'll save the answer to that for the end, okay? So you'll just have to be listening as we go through this. 2 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to look at uh, verse 2 through the end of the chapter. So uh, it's going to be good that you follow along in your Bibles um, so that you see what we're looking at. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. Remember, Paul has been talking about how the Corinthians have kind of withdrawn their love from him. They've started to believe false accusations and criticisms about Paul. And he's really concerned about that. Um, It's like they've turned their back on him. So he says, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Now, let's just stop there because I want you to notice something that we keep coming back to. All three of these words that make up the title of this series in 2 Corinthians are in those two verses. We keep seeing these three words. 
criticism, conviction, and concern. Now, by implication, we see some of the criticisms here. Apparently, people were criticizing Paul for wronging people in these different churches, for corrupting them with his teaching, and for exploiting them when he was with them for his own gain and his own profit. So these verses remind us by implication of some of these criticisms. But also you'll notice the way he says this, there's real conviction on Paul's part. He's very firm. He just says it right out. We have wronged no one. He's convinced of that. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. So he responds to the criticism again with conviction. And then, in the next verse, we see the concern. I don't say this to condemn you. I've said before, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. The very people who were starting to believe the criticisms, the very people who were starting to think maybe the accusations are true, Paul still was concerned about them and cared about them. So just in those two verses, we have our full title of this series again, these three words. Let's go on. Verse 4, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bound. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Let's jump to verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Now, Perhaps if you haven't been with us through this series, you don't grasp what I just read, okay? But if you've been here, one thing you would notice, going by what Paul is talking about, he's saying he has joy, he is encouraged, he is comforted, he is delighted. Knowing what we know from what we've studied so far, we have to ask the question, has something happened in the Corinthian church? This is different. Up to this point, Paul has been distressed. He's been talking about what's going on in the church and how difficult it's been to try and get them to change. And now he's talking about joy and encouragement and comfort and all these positive things, it's like something has happened in the church. On your sheet, there's a review, I believe, to the right. Let's review what has taken place up to this point. Paul found out that there was sexual sin going on openly in the Corinthian church. It was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. 
And Scripture says it was such a terrible sin that even the pagans, the unbelievers in Corinth, wouldn't tolerate it. And Corinth was a very immoral city. But what this man was openly doing in this church was even distasteful to the world around them. And yet Paul had heard that the Corinthian church had pridefully done nothing. It was like they were proud of their tolerance. And they had done nothing about this. And so, Paul had written a letter. We don't have record of that letter, but he had written a letter addressing this particular issue and encouraging them to address it and to deal with this man. But they didn't. And so then, as he writes what we call 1 Corinthians, the letter before the one we're studying, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he brings up this issue about this man and the immorality and the fact that they've pridefully tolerated it, done nothing about it. He brings it up again, and he says, you've got to deal with it. And he's very serious about that. They didn't deal with it. They didn't do anything about it. They resisted that. And so, as we've learned in the past weeks, Paul made an unplanned, what he calls a painful visit, back to Corinth to deal with that issue in person. And it didn't go well. didn't go well at all. Probably the man himself rejected Paul. The church rejected his plea for them to do something. He says it was a painful visit. And they did nothing about it. So then, he decides to write what he called a severe letter. I mean, Paul is really determined to help these people and convince them to address the situation. It's that serious. And so he now writes them a letter. He calls it severe. And we find that he was very firm in that letter, but he also was very loving. What a, what a combination, huh? Firm. You've got to do something. But very loving, reminding them of his care for them. And we're told that Paul went to Macedonia north of Corinth, north of Achaia, to wait because he had sent his partner Titus to Corinth with this severe letter. I mean, you couldn't mail it. You couldn't put it in a mailbox. So it had to be hand-delivered. And so he sent this severe letter to the church at Corinth with Titus. And he waits in Macedonia for Titus to come back and let him know how it went. And that's what he's referring to here in what I read. He's in Macedonia. Uh, It's been tough there. He's waiting and he's waiting and Titus isn't coming back. But then finally Titus comes. And Titus apparently had good news. This letter must have worked. This severe letter must have been used by God to finally get through to these people. And that's why Paul now says, I'm full of joy. I'm delighted. I'm encouraged. I'm comforted. Titus is encouraged and comforted. He had a great time. You welcomed him. And apparently they responded. So what happened? To bring the joy. What was it? Repentance. After all these efforts, when this letter, this severe letter was read to the church, this time they responded. And they repented. The people probably repented of their prideful tolerance and realized that was wrong. 
and probably address the situation and ask this man to leave. But as we know from chapter 2, the man apparently repented of what he was doing and was able to come back to the church. And so all was well on that issue. And that's why Paul can talk about joy and comfort and encouragement. There had been repentance. Take a look at verses 8 to 10. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, this severe letter that Titus had brought, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, apparently when he first wrote it and sent it, he had some regrets. Uh, What are they going to do now? How will they respond? Maybe I shouldn't have been so firm. You know, whatever his regrets were. But he says, now I don't regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So what had happened? This letter was read to the Corinthians. God used it to bring what Paul calls godly sorrow to these people. And he says, it it may have hurt you. It brought you sorrow. But it brought you godly sorrow. And godly sorrow leads to repentance. And he brings up the idea that there are two kinds of sorrow when it comes to sin. There's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. You see that? And he says, godly sorrow leads to repentance and results in salvation. And not just salvation, you know, uh, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but salvation just in the general way of bringing restoration, deliverance from what holds you in bondage, what you struggle with, salvation that makes your life whole again. And he says that's what godly sorrow does. It it leads you to repentance, which leads you back to freedom, to wholeness, to restoration. But he says, worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance. You see, worldly sorrow is when you feel bad that you got caught. Worldly sorrow is when you're feeling the pain of the consequences of your sin and you don't like it. Worldly sorrow is all the complications that come to your life because of your sin and people become aware of it. And go on and on. Worldly sorrow is you feel bad that your sin is affecting somebody else or it's harmed a relationship and you feel bad about it. But then you see, time goes on, and things kind of calm down, and that worldly sorrow starts to subside, and guess what happens? You go right back to that sin, right? It does not lead to salvation, to restoration, to reconciliation, to freedom from the struggle and the bondage to that sin. It just made you feel bad for a while till that feeling went away. And then right back into the sin that masters you. And it leads to death. Or ruin of some kind. Or the death of something. Relationships, joy, peace, whatever. So there, 
There's two kinds of sorrow when it deals with our sin. And Paul says there's the worldly sorrow, there's the godly sorrow. Only one leads to repentance and restoration and reconciliation and peace and joy and all that. And it's the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And that apparently was what had happened in Corinth. Now, I want to spend the rest of the time looking at a list. Paul now goes on, and in verse 11, he says, See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. And he mentions seven things that godly sorrow produces that leads you to repentance. Worldly sorrow won't do this, but this is godly sorrow over sin that will lead to repentance. This is what Paul says happened to the Corinthians. So he says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. First, earnestness. Godly sorrow produces earnestness. That means zeal, an eagerness to take action, a sense of urgency. The godly sorrow that leads us to repentance creates in us this eagerness to take action, this urgency. I can't go on. This has gone too far. And you have this urgency. I've got to do something. I've got to take care of this. I've got to address it. That's what godly sorrow produces. Earnestness. Next he says, it produces eagerness to clear yourself. The idea there of the words that are used is to mend your ways. You, you, you develop this eagerness within you to mend your ways, to take action, to make it right, that there be change. That's godly sorrow. The third is indignation. The godly sorrow produces indignation. What's indignation? It's anger. But it's specifically anger toward your sin and the situation it's brought about. Have you ever been angry about your sin? Have you ever been angry about the fact that you struggle with a certain sin? Angry about the fact that that sin seems to be in control of you? It can make you angry, can't it? I've experienced times where I actually hated a sin. And I think we need to get there. I think that's the godly sorrow. Where it brings about, it produces this indignation toward the sin and the situation the sin is bringing into your life. And you're so angry about it and you hate that sin. And friends, until you hate that sin, you're not going to do anything about it. There will be no repentance. Godly sorrow produces this hatred toward that sin and what it's doing. And that will lead to repentance. Fourth, he says, alarm was produced in their lives because of this godly sorrow. Alarm. It comes from the word phobia, which is fear. So he's talking about fear. This godly sorrow produced a fear in you. Fear of what? Alarm about what? What could happen if I continue in this sin? What will be the consequences if I just go on? If I don't address the sin in my life. And you begin to think about that. And it creates this fear. And you begin to be alarmed by what you're doing. And the potential of even going further in it. He says it produced longing in you. Fifth. Longing is simply a deep desire. And in this context, probably a deep desire for restoration, a deep desire, a longing for forgiveness, a, a, a deep desire for uh, reconciliation, for change, for, for making this right, but a longing for it. Sixth, he says, 
But godly sorrow produced in them concern. And maybe that's concern for what the sin has done in your life, but also what it's done to other people and your relationships. In fact, that might have been the case here because you notice in uh, verse 7, he says, And not only by his coming, Titus' coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me. This godly sorrow was beginning to cause them to be concerned about what it had done to their relationship with Paul and the chasm that had developed there and their criticism of him and their suspicions of him. And somehow God had moved in their hearts and put this godly sorrow in there that produced a concern for Paul and what they were doing to him in their prideful sinning. And then seventh, he says, there's this readiness to see justice done. This readiness to do what's right. This readiness to take care of the situation. This readiness for reconciliation. This readiness for whatever has to be done to address the sin. And what Paul is saying is godly sorrow produced all of these things in your lives. And it led to repentance. It led you to repent of your sin. And then what does repentance lead to? It leads to joy. And there was joy in Paul's heart as he found out that these people he cared about had repented. Repentance simply means to change your mind and turn in a different direction. It means to change your mind about your sin and to address it, to seek forgiveness and then turn in another direction. To turn from to to turn from that sin to a life without that sin to God. And that had happened with the Corinthians, and it brought great joy to Paul, great encouragement and comfort. He had struggled so long. It was over a year, back and forth, visits, letters, I'm sure praying. And finally, God broke through to those people. And they repented. And I would guess they too were experiencing the joy of repentance. You know, those two words don't seem to fit together. Repentance is a real hard thing. And then to put joy together with it, the joy of repentance. But you see, there is joy in repentance, as hard as repentance is. Because you've got to humble yourself greatly. But when we do repent, truly repent of sin, because it's godly sorrow that led us to that repentance, there is a joy. And the joy of repentance is the joy of reconciliation. You see, because repentance reconciles you with God, your relationship with Him. And there's joy in that. Repentance reconciles you with the people who have been impacted by your sin, hurt by your sin, relationships that have been damaged by your sin. The joy of repentance is the joy of reconciliation with God and with others. The joy of repentance is the joy of doing the right thing. Isn't it satisfying just to know you've done the right thing? Isn't there a joy just in knowing you did the right thing? And the joy of repentance is the joy of knowing you've done the right thing. You've addressed your sin, and you've turned from it. The joy of repentance is the joy of freedom. Freedom brings joy. And when we continue in a sin, we become slaves of that sin. We're in bondage. We're chained to it. And repentance frees us. And there's joy in that freedom. 
The joy of repentance is the joy of freedom from bondage to that sin. And the joy of repentance is the joy of renewal. The renewal of the joy that was stolen because of your sin. You remember David in Psalm 51 when he was repenting and dealing with his sin? He said to God, restore to me what? The joy of my salvation. My sin has stolen my joy. Repentance restores the joy. Brings it back. It restores relationships. Relationship with God. Relationship with other people, perhaps. There's restoration and renewal in true repentance. And so, this is a a piece of this letter that becomes a high point. It's a high point for both Paul and the people in Corinth. And it's because repentance has taken place. There's been repentance. It's brought joy to Paul. It's brought joy to the people who practiced repentance in Corinth. And so, now, Paul can go on with other subjects. Like giving. Chapters 8 and 9. And we'll find out tonight how 8 and 9 tie in with the fact that this issue has been dealt with. And there's been repentance. Well, that's a nice story about the Corinthians and Paul. Let's get real. Let's get honest. Yes, let's get personal. Okay? Because there are people here, I mean, there's enough people here to confidently say this. There are people here who need to experience the joy of repentance. Notice at the bottom of your sheet some questions. Are you involved with sin that is weighing you down and stealing your joy? Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, the answer is yes, for sure, because you're in bondage to sin. Uh, The only way you're going to experience the joy of repentance is to repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus for his forgiveness and salvation. But tell you what, Christians, there are times when we get involved in sin and it steals our joy and it weighs us down. Is that your experience right now? Are you involved with sin that's weighing you down and stealing your joy? It could be some behavior, some lifestyle thing. It could be in your mind. It could be in your thought life. It could be your attitudes toward people. It could be your relationships with people. Um, Sin shows itself in many different forms. But what they all have in common is that sin starts to weigh us down. It steals our joy and it starts to control us. Is that your situation? Second, have you learned the futility of worldly sorrow? Have you found out it doesn't work? Have you found out that worldly sorrow doesn't work when it pertains to that sin in your life? I mean, there are times when you feel bad about it. There are times when you wish you weren't involved in that sin. There are times when you see what it's doing to other people and you feel bad about it. There are times where for a few minutes you actually think, you know, I should do something about this. There are times when it actually brings pain to your life, but then it all goes away. And there's been no repentance. See, that's worldly sorrow. That's not godly sorrow. 
Have you learned that worldly sorrow is futile? It doesn't work. It's only the sorrow that God puts there by his Holy Spirit that will bring about these seven things and repentance. The third question, are you willing to humbly let the Spirit of God bring godly sorrow and lead you to true repentance? Are you willing for God to bring godly sorrow? To bring these seven things he listed into your life and lead you to repentance. You see, you can't be like Augustine and say, Lord, you know, during those moments of worldly sorrow, say, Lord, I want to change. I want you to change me. Take this away. But not yet. But not yet. I want to wait a little longer. Not now. I feel bad about it. I don't like what it's doing to me. I don't like what it's doing to other people. I see the danger of it, but not yet. You can't be like that eagle. Comfortable on that ice chunk. Comfortable with your sin. Enjoying the ride. Thinking, this isn't good, but before I get to that waterfall, before it gets too bad, I'll deal with it. You may not have that opportunity because your feet may freeze to that ice chunk and you won't be able to address it. And remember the magic of the Etch-A-Sketch. On the screen right now is a mess. On the screen right now is what your sin has been doing in your life. What it's been doing to your relationships with God, with people. The pain it's been causing. It's all over the screen of your Etch-A-Sketch. Friends, the good news is you can just turn that upside down and you can start shaking in repentance. And the Spirit of God has a way of erasing the screen and giving you a fresh, renewed start. It's called forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation. I'm not sure why you would want to wait if you're dealing with a sin. I'm guessing I prayed and I believe in answered prayer that God would bring somebody here today that's already beginning to experience some of these seven things that Paul listed here. That God has already been starting to create in you by his spirit this godly sorrow. And that the next step for you is true repentance. To truly and genuinely and honestly repent before God. Seek His forgiveness. Seek restoration, reconciliation with Him. Freedom from that sin's hold on you. I've been praying that today would be the day, not just at the deck in Duluth, but here in this place, that there would be something significant happening in somebody's life because of repentance. So, I'm going to pray twice. I'm going to pray and ask God, to do whatever work he needs to do. He knows you better than me. I have no clue who this was for. But uh, I'm going to pray that 
God, by his spirit, has been, will continue to bring into your heart godly sorrow that will lead to a true repentance of whatever it is before God so that you can experience the joy of repentance, the restoration, the reconciliation, the renewal, the freedom, just the satisfaction of doing the right thing. And then God can take you with this fresh screen and start doing his amazing work in your life. And after I've prayed, I'm going to give you some time with God to do that. And then I'll close the service. But let's pray right now. Father, thank you for the work that you did in the Corinthian church. What a joy it was to the Apostle Paul who had struggled so long trying to get them to this place. The resistance had been so strong. The pride had been so stubborn. And yet, God, whatever he said in that letter, you used it. And you stirred this godly sorrow in the hearts of those people and that man. And it brought about this wonderful repentance. Father, that needs to happen in lives here today whose joy has been stolen by sin. Father, I pray that in the next few moments there would be genuine repentance. As people who don't know you, repent before you and seek your salvation. As people who know you, just repent of things that have gotten in the way and stolen their joy and affected their relationship with you. Father, may this be a time of repentance and the restoring of joy. Work by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. For the next few moments, just in the quietness, if you want to do it in your seat sitting there, just you and God, if you need to get on your knees, if you need to come up here and stand before God to do your repentance, if you need to come uh, and, and do it on your knees, uh, if you need to go and talk to somebody, somebody you respect, and just ask them to pray with you about this, uh, however you need to, to deal with your sin and do the repentance that is so necessary. Um, let's do that, and uh, I'll close in prayer in a few minutes.
Father, this is the kind of thing that only you can do. The forgiveness, the restoration, the bringing back of joy, the convicting, the bringing of godly sorrow that can lead us to repentance, the changing of our lives as we turn from our sin toward you, walking with you closely. It's only you who can do that, can make that happen. Father, we have come to you, and hopefully many of us with sincere hearts, with these things that Paul talked about, the eagerness, the readiness, the longing, even the hatred toward our sin. Father, I pray that there would be fruit of the repentance that has taken place here this morning. Father, if it would be good for us to share what's happened between you and us with others, give us the boldness to find someone to share that. But, Father, most importantly, may you take us now and begin to write anew our life with you as we have turned from certain sins. Father, may this bring glory to you. May there be a difference in many lives. May there be joy and freedom because of repentance this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.